Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was the Trogs and Lost Girl, the Trogs' debut single, I believe, way back in, I think it was 1966. I've got the huge pleasure to welcome Pete Staples, original bass guitarist for the Trogs, and on all their great material back in the 1960s. Uh, Welcome to the show, Pete. Thanks very much, Jason. I got many of the insights into, into your time into the Trogs in your autobiography, Wild Thing, A Rocky Road. Can you explain how you got involved with the Trogs? Because I think the Trogs were going, but not the Trogs as we know it. And then there was kind of a merger of some bands that created the Trogs we know and love. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. initially there was um, a, a group in Andover um, called the Trogs. Um, that was um, Reg Ball, um, Ginger Mansfield, yeah. Dave Wright, and uh, Ronnie Bullis. And they were going out as the Trogs, and they they played all R and B. There was virtually all R and B group they were. Yeah. And um, I was in another group um, called the Ten Feet Five, you know, with Chris Britton, who later became the the Trogs guitarist. And um, our group gradually split up as groups did in those days, you know, mm. especially in um, small towns. Uh, you, you go from one group to another or a group packed up and 
you, you'd be um, you would replace that person. Because I started off on rhythm guitar with another group, right. and they um, the the ten feet five bass player left, and they asked me if I'd want to come and play bass for them. So uh, this is how things used to happen in those days. Anyhow, um, getting back to how it formed was the um, some people left the ten feet five. Uh, it just left Chris Britton and myself there, yeah. and some people left the Trogs, uh, the original Trogs, um, which just left um, Ronnie, Ronnie Bullis, and Red's Ball there. Um, well, we both had different managers, and the two managers got together and they said, "Well, we've got two groups here, you know, with um, you know, they've got a full band." So we said, "They said, why don't you just join up, you know, and make one group?" So. We said, oh, fair enough. So we kept the name Trogs because that was on the on the drum kit. And we just started practicing a mixture of what the Trogs used to do, which was all R&B, and some of the numbers which we used to do, which was we used to do sort of Beatles numbers and Buddy Holly and all that sort of stuff. So we had a very wide range of numbers that we, we could use on stage. But um, as I said, we, we formed together with... Uh, Reg and Ronnie um, used their name and just carried on as the Trogs, and that's how the uh, the new band, the one that people know now, yeah. um, actually was formed. Great! It was Larry Page who I think was managing the Kinks that took the Trogs to the next level. I guess that's right. Yes, with the um, the, the sorry, I, I missed one person out on the original Trogs. Uh, Dave Wright, he was uh, the rhythm guitarist in the Trogs, and. Um, he used to keep going up to London and badgering Larry Page, you know, about, um, you know, would he, can he hear our group? You know, can he hear the group? This was the original trial. Yeah. It's not the one that I joined. And um, Larry Page would say, come up here and, you know, let's hear what you got. So they were, they went up there, the group went up there and played. He said, well, he said, I don't know if um, I can do anything for you at the moment, but, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll see you later on. Mm. Anyhow, they got a little bit despondent, the um, the original Trogs did, and I think that's what they gradually um, dispersed because they weren't getting anywhere. But when um, Reg and Ronnie were left in the Trogs and Chris and I were left from the 10 feet 5 and joined the new Trogs, we went up to see Larry Page and he actually liked us. He thought we were a better setup than the uh, the original Trogs. So... Um, he decided to, um, uh, you know, record us and then um, see how it went from there. And how did you choose the material that you released as singles then? So we heard Lost Girl, first of all. Was it Larry making the running or was it you and the band? Well, it, it was a band, really, because Larry just lost the kinks as right. um, manager. And um, we believe he was looking for another group. And we just came along at that time. Um, Reg uh, did a little bit of songwriting. And um, so we recorded. Um, he said, I'll take you in the studio and, uh, you know, record something. So we recorded this one. It was released, Lost Girl. Mm. Um, but it, it didn't do anything. So things went quiet again, you know. And uh, so that was, that was our first introduction. But things got better later on. Yeah. It was Larry who had a contact or some sort of new Chip Taylor that ultimately got Wild Thing? 
Well, yeah, he went over to America because um, he just formed company with Dick James, who was a, the Beatles' music publisher, and they started this new record company. Uh, and um, they they were looking for material and artists, and he went across to uh, America. I'm not quite sure why he went over there, you know, because a lot of things, you know, these people do that you, that they, they're here, there, and everywhere, these managers mm-hmm. are. But he went across to America, and he brought back this song. Um, I think he brought back a couple of songs, and one was Wild Thing. And because he knew us, he said, um, he said, I just got back from America. He said, I've got this demo here. He said, uh, uh, go away and see what you can do with it. He said, he said I've got a, an orchestra of mine that I'm recording. And um, on a certain day, if there's any time left after I've done recordings, yeah. you can jump in and bang this Wild Thing song out. We, a very, very basic demo it was. It was just somebody strumming a, an acoustic guitar and singing these words. So... Uh, we went away and put uh, our version to it, and um, and then he he rang us up. He said, "Well, he said we got uh, my um, band is recording on such and such a day. Be up here at the studio at such and such a time." So we went up there, sitting in the van outside. Then somebody came out and said, "Right, you know, get your gear out the van, get it all set up. You got an hour or something like that left so, to do some recording." So we went in. And we did Wild Thing, and we also did uh, um, a- another song, one of Reg's songs, yeah. you know, uh, um, With a Girl Like You. Yeah. So in about three quarters of an hour, we knocked Wild Thing out, and With a Girl Like You, in about three quarters of an hour. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's funny how things go, isn't it, really? Yeah, absolutely. How wild things gone around the world, you know, mm. just for that... Uh, you know, just running the studio and banging it out a bit quick. It's worth emphasising the band's performance on on Wild Thing, as, as you say, because Chip Taylor's demo, an acoustic demo, was, I understand, nothing like the Trogs version. And it's a full band performance. Yourself on that powerful bass, Ronnie's hard drumming, Chris has got that sort of distortion at the start, you've got Reggie's vocals... I mean, obviously, you've got to have a great song, but it's the performance as well that lifts it into the, the classic status there as well. Yes, I, I gave a sort of basic description on how things turned out. But, you know, looking back, you know, when, when we heard the dem- demo, our, our manager in Andover, he had a shop fitting business. He had a, a very, very big workshop there, like a, a, a warehouse. It was a small warehouse. And we used to rehearse in there. And it was winter time, so it was very cold, and we managed to get the heating going down there. And um, so we we did rehearse Wild Thing, and we couldn't do it how Chip Taylor did it, you know, because we no. we weren't that sort of group. You know, Reg wasn't that sort of singer, Ronnie wasn't that sort of drummer. Well, there was no drums on the Chip Taylor thing, so we had to do uh, a very very heavy crude version of it see all all we wanted to do was just go in the recording studio and record you know that's all you you wanted to do in those days and get a record release just to get a record release that's all you wanted so you'd bang out anything so um <laughs> we we decided you know that we couldn't do it just a, like an acoustic guitar so and being in this large 
warehouse type place we could turn the volume right up and really hit it and reds yeah. sort of clowned around with his sexy voice doing it and that's how it ended up really just like that <laughs> It's amazing to think that it wasn't so you had that chart success that you actually turned professional because I think you were still working in as a maintenance electrician in 1966, weren't you? I was, yes, yeah. When we were all working, I was uh, I was working as a maintenance electrician. Yeah. Uh, Reg was uh, on the building site. Um, he was a bricklayer. Ronnie was on the building site. He was, I think he was a, a labourer, I think Ronnie was. And Chris, he was a, a lithographic printer for some printing firm. And, um, I was working in somebody's house, um, doing some electrical work. And, um, I heard on the, the radio going and, and I heard, and here we are at number eight, the Trogs with Wild Thing. Hmm. And I thought, what am I doing here? You know, I dialed the, so we got together that evening, the rest of the lads, and we decided we'd better give Larry a ring, you know, because we, we, we should really turn professional because um, <laughs> we silly carried on working when you're, you know, so high in the chart. You dream of those things. Um, so uh, we gave Larry a ring and said, um, do you think we ought to turn professional and pack in our jobs? 
So we said, yeah, yeah, you might as well. So next morning I went in and uh, sort of packed in my job and uh, told the boss I was leaving and, uh, and Reg and Ronnie and Chris all, all did the same. So, and that's when the big um, promotion thing started, you know, yeah. which is another story. What a great year for the Trogs. I can't control myself. A great vocal performance by Reg at the start with that, oh no, (laughs) oh no. He did seem to have something unique about each of those singles that once you heard them on the radio, it was very very distinctive and and it would attract people's attention. Yes, I think... um... Well, if we go back to Wild Thing, you know, of course, as I said, Chip Taylor just had an acoustic guitar strumming there. Uh, we decided, you know, that, uh, if we were going to play um, very heavy um, rhythm to it, a very hard beat number, you know, we all we all, we all got to come in together. Yeah. So uh, so we had that, um, that intro, that guitar, Chris on fuzz uh, distortion, I should say, that the high then he sort of nodded and we all sort of came in together so that gave that one the intro so quite often these songs we always used to say um as soon as people hear maybe the first chord or some something at the beginning of the song their ears prick up they get them interested straight away so um on quite a lot of the songs that's what we used to try to think up how we're going to get people's say, oh, is that song, you know, so rather than go straight into it. Yeah, I Can't Control Myself, that was one of Reggie's songs, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 Reg, um, 
Reg used to write with you know quite a lot of records, a uh, lot, lot, lot of songs. But the thing was that um, in the early stages, you know, we um, we all used to sit around and work it all, all out yeah. together. Reg used to come up with a basic song and the tune, and um, then we all used to put our bits to it. So really, it, it was a really. I don't think it would. I don't think the Trogs sound would have sounded the same with other people. No. If they had a different guitarist, a different bass player, and a different drummer, I don't think you would get the same sound or the feel to it. Um, because Wild Thing is a very, very... It seems a very, very easy song to play. But, you know, you, you get certain people, they, they just cannot play it at all mm. because it's too basic. And, and they get very... Uh, maybe they can't feel it or they get a bit bored with playing three chords and um, they they start putting fiddly bits in and um, making it a bit too jingly, which we we didn't. We we just kept it very, very basic and just banged it out. So I think if anybody else had recorded Wild Thing, it it would have been a completely different number. Yeah. And a, a bit of controversy at the time. Certainly, I think in the US, with the lyrics to "I can't control myself," there's, there's that line: "Her slacks were low and her hips were showing," and you get sort of that prudes. Well, <laughs> that, that, I, I didn't know that one so much because we, we used to Reg used to write a lot of the songs uh, to be very sexy because he used to yeah. try to uh, do that part on stage, do the sexy bit, you know, do. And we always used used to say, you know, that's what, if you make the girls sort of uh, uh, feel, you know, a little bit excited and all that, you know, th- that's one of the main parts about it, as well as the song. But you know, that that your personality and getting through to them um, seems to be a very important part. But um, you saying about um, in America, can't control myself. The, the the big one was not in America. It was in Australia, um, Night of the Long Grass, and that one was banned in Australia <laughs> because uh, we were talking about sing. Uh, well, we weren't talking about. They thought we were singing about drugs. Well, none of us, <laughs> n- none of us took drugs. You know, we just didn't take them. But they banned Night of the Long Grass in Australia. <laughs> oh no! Show myself. 
got this feeling that's inside of me It makes me think of how things used to be It makes me feel alright When I'm with you at night and we love got Mona. You were quite up front playing and, and on vocals on that track, certainly in the live, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. That, that was always a, 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 that was one of the numbers that I used to do in the 10 feet 5. And the thing is, with the 10 feet 5 and with the trogs, when we amalgamated, see, Reg was never a singer in the original trogs. And I wasn't a singer, or Chris and I weren't singers in the 10 feet 5. We had singers we had a singer i should say so when we joined together we didn't actually have a singer as such uh we had two bass players reg played the bass and i played the bass so he took over the singing and i just carried on on, on with the bass playing and um that that's how that ended up and um reg used to do do a lot of the songwriting as well there was those great package tours in the 60s, and uh, you and the band were out with the Walker Brothers, Dave D, Dorsey Beaky, Mick and Titch, for example, in, in that period. Um, that, that It must have been great fun to go around the country with um, fellow artists. It was, and when we did the tour with um, Dave D, Dorsey Beaky, Mick and Titch, and of course, mm. they come from Salisbury, which is, you know, about 18 miles from Andover, where we live, so um, we all had... Um, even though they were in Wiltshire, we were in Hampshire, we still had sort of yeah. rural accents. Uh, and we got on very well, uh, you know, together, you know, on, on the tour. We got on well with nearly all it, well, virtually everybody, um, uh, with the Walker Brothers tour. Um, I think Scott was a little bit shy. He was a bit shy, so we didn't see much of him. But the other two Walkers we did, Walker Brothers, mm. Gene Pitney, great. We used to have a good laugh with him, you know, and so... Um, in going round doing these tours, it was because you all clamber on the bus together. So mm. I don't know what they do nowadays, but um, there used to be uh, a tour bus, and you all used to pile on the on the bus. So on the bus, you know, you had uh, all these groups and uh, road managers and all sorts. So it was all, <laughs> like a mad Sunday school ha- <laughs> Sunday school outing. I think it was. <laughs> Thank you. 
we talked about Reggie's songwriting. The Trogs did record some of your material, and one of those songs was Oh No, and I think there was even um, another version of it by Barry Benson on page one that's quite hard to get hold of. What was the process for submitting uh, songs for the band? Was it difficult to get songs over? Well, it was. I say the problem. It, it, it could have been a problem. Sometimes it was a problem um, where because Reg was the singer and Reg was songwriter, a songwriter as well. He would do all his his songs first, right. and quite often some of the songs were actually written in the studio. Uh, they used to book a studio maybe for a day for us to do all these songs, and and if we didn't have enough songs written we used to have to write write them in the studio i think larry and larry our manager and colin fretchter our um, musical producer sometimes we used to knock up a song and um but sometimes you know i, I would have a song and i'd say you know how about this one and it was actually not written uh in the uh in the studio but um actually the arrangements and all that w- were done in the studio mm. uh, a very very expensive way of doing it. not not a recommend recommended way of doing it because it costs you a lot of money you know because all you're doing is rehearsing and paying a hell of a lot of money for it you know and and when you think back you know we um we didn't pay anything for the rehearsal for wild thing we did it <laughs> in a warehouse so um you know, which we weren't charged for so w- when you you know, in a studio, when you're actually writing a song and arranging it, uh, it can work very expensive, especially if the song doesn't come to anything. But um, yeah, um, oh no, I actually um, had written that one, and um, then we sort of produced it in the studio. How, how did the B sides work? Well, they're, they're, they're all a bit dodgy, really, because um, uh, it was up to the record company, i.e. Larry Page, who was also our manager, he was our record company, would decide what on the B side, and and quite often, um, as I said, some of the songs were uh, written in the studio and recorded at the same time. So if the if there was Reg used to do a song, or we did a song maybe of Chip Taylor's or somebody, we used to maybe practice that before we went in there. And then he said, well, we need a B-side. Has anybody got anything? So we said, no. So he said, well, you know, we've knocked up this one. Try this one. So uh, then Larry and Colin would maybe get the B-side. But it did get a little bit um, out of hand sometimes, a little bit annoying as well, because um, like Chris, Ronnie and myself didn't often get a B-side. Yeah. And we kicked up about it. And then things started to change a little bit after that. We took it in turns at having the B-side. Thank you. 
everything go right But you didn't want to know Oh no We've covered the fact that Night of the Long Grass, certainly in Australia, was uh, banned or there was certainly controversy there. For me, a great single of the era and, sh- and a shift in sound more akin to some of the, the acts in, in the charts that were a bit more of a psychedelic persuasion, but obviously from the Trogs, the band weren't into psychedelia. No, not really, no. Well, well... We used to try anything, anything that was in vogue at the time. Uh, used to have to change. We we went to um, uh, flower powers in once, and we um, we changed. Uh, we wore white trousers and ponchos. <laughs> would you believe? Uh, <laughs> it, it all depends. What uh, that was the flower power bit, and then you you go into um, well the psychedelic thing. Or well, we we didn't. Um, we we didn't take any drugs, so it was a little bit difficult to play that type of music, even though we used to try to. But it, we used to have to try to adapt to what was in vogue at that particular time. Um, but I don't think we ever got really round to uh, psychedelic music because um, uh, quite a lot of that was, um, you know, electronic stuff. And, you know, we we were just bass, guitar, drums, and a singer, and we didn't really have that. But, um, no, we never got into psychedelic stuff. Was it a similar process as you got into the tracks like that? Did you spend as, as long recording the material as in the early days? or In, in the early days, um, we seemed to have... When we were touring around, we usually had time to maybe write some material, but um, see, the, the music industry... Uh, changes and you, you've got to be very aware of what people are going to like. And so, um, it's very difficult. Um, you, you had to do one or two things, either stay with what you could do and, and what you were noted for or try to adapt. We tried to adapt many times, but it still came back to the same old things, sort of basic, um, heavy hitting and maybe some quite nice melodical songs so we we didn't actually get into psychedelic Yeah. 
Cousin Jane from that sort of era is quite an interesting song. But I think that was one of Larry Page's, wasn't it? Well, it, no, it was um, a friend of Larry's Page who was a, ah. a songwriter. He wrote that Cousin Jane. Yeah. But I say, I don't think, you know, we, I suppose that's a bit of, I don't know if you call that psychedelic or what, um, but um, it was a, an unusual. Uh, there was a lot of unusual. That we, were, we were told, um, you know, have a look at this uh, number and see what you think of it. And um, we we used to try and put our interpretation on it. And then they would take it away, maybe put some other things on it, like strings or, right. or weird effects. So we would maybe get the basic thing down and um, that, that they would do other things to... Uh, maybe bring it up to um, what was in vogue at the time, I suppose. That makes sense. Cousin Jane's got a bit more of an ornateness on, on top, but I guess it was the band just doing the, the car track and then there was a bit of production sprinkled over on the top. Yeah, that's what they used to do. Yeah, they quite often um, they, they'd throw extra bits. And, see, Night of the Long Grass, that was a funny uh, funny number. That was, mm. well, I don't know if you call that a psychedelic, or, but um, as I say, because of the, the effects that they put on there, um, it did sound, it did um, have the feel as though it was um, somebody on, on drugs. It did have that feel to it, you know, the, the sort of funny noises mm. they put on there. And, of course, singing about Night of the Long Grass, which Wrench didn't, he wasn't talking about drugs whatsoever. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what he was talking about, but he wasn't talking about drugs. And um, then it was banned in Australia because they thought we were singing about drugs but the music did um, sort of lean towards um, uh, somebody on a high Cousin Jane Cousin Jane Come to stay again Come to stay again Cousin Jane Cousin Jane Cousin Jane, cousin Jane, she's 
Hi Hazel. That was a song that kind of only skirted the top 40 despite a push as opposed to quite solid consistent success for the band. Was that difficult to to handle with the band or management? Well, you real well I realize now at, at the time I don't know if we realized it or didn't understand why your popularity or your your record sales weren't so high. Uh, you had your, your loyal fans, but of course, you're, you're getting new groups coming up all the time, and you're getting uh, different types of music coming up. And um, and I, I think also we were we used to have a hell of a lot of publicity stunts. We used to do publicity stunts, a hell of a lot mm. of publicity. I, we I think you know that, that we were sort of um, overexposed, really. You know, we had too much of us, really, and uh, people. Go on and look for other things, really. And it would have taken uh, another song like, well, another type of song like Wild Thing or something extra special to push you back up there again. What's this about getting a lion into the studio? Yeah, well, that was some, we, as I said, we used to do a hell of a lot of publicity stunts and we had a marvelous publicist and, um, he mentioned that, you know, we ought to do this stunt where, we're going to record um, a, a song called, uh, I think it was the, the Lion or something. And uh, he said, we all get a lion in the studio to do a roar. He said, we get the press round there. So we said, uh, yeah, all right. So they, they booked um, uh, a studio and we turned up there. Mary Chipperfield turned up with this lion, Marquis. Damn great thing it was. And... Um, she put him on, they had this small stage in the studio and they, she put the lion on the stage, he had a great big chain around its neck and she wrapped it around the leg of the stage and under the stage was all, I think it's like old fluorescent fittings or old bits of metal and they put a mic up against this, this lion on the stand, put it by his face and all the press came in and they thought it was a bit of a joke, you know, and they, they was all laughing and all that. And uh, they come in there with cameras. Anyhow, we told them what we're going to do. We're going to record this song, but we wanted to get a lion's roar. So they all sort of laughing and all that. And um, mm. so somebody in the re- studio control box um, plugged the mic in. I don't know if they wanted to listen to what we were saying out there. And the lion goes and licks oh, the God. mic, and he gets electric shock off of it. Oh. He jerks his head up, and which lifts this small stage up. All this metal was underneath. It rattled, and the lion did roar then. And you've never seen so many people try to get through one door in your life. <laughs> you know, the, the, the press, there must have been about six of them trying to get through this little tiny door. And the, the, <laughs> we were on stage with this lion that the group were. And we, we couldn't get near the door. I, I saw this <laughs> grand piano with the lid open. I thought, I'm going to jump in there, you know, because I, I, thought, I thought the lion was going to go bananas. But um, they, they all managed, we all managed to get out. And, um, and Mary Chipperfield had to take the lion outside and mm. give it some meat and sort of <laughs> quiet him down a little bit. Then, um, then we went back in. But um, if it wasn't for that lion licking that mic, getting the electric shock and doing this roar and... 
I don't think you know we'd have made the press, but um, we made all the all the nationals with that one. I can't find any evidence of that trap being released. No, it wasn't. No, 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 no. Nothing was released. It was just a publicity stunt. That <laughs> we told them that what we were doing it for, you know, for this track. And uh, no, no, we didn't do a. Never did a song. I think the only song we did about an animal was. Um, a song I wrote called Little Red Donkey, and that's the only one uh, we did about an animal. An animal you know, nothing about a lion or anything like that. previously mentioned that it would take a really strong song to break through and, and get back up in, into the charts and love is all around was that case in point really written by reg yeah do you recall him bringing that into the studio or playing that for the first time and what did you think yeah um i, I can't actually remember where we yeah where we rehearsed it but we we'd um split up with larry page then right and then um we were, you know, a bit of a loss, really, because 
we always had somebody in the studio, you know, listening to us and saying, you know, do this and do that. And we didn't have anybody there. But I say we didn't have anybody there. We didn't have Larry there, but we had Colin Fretchter there, who was our musical director. And he, he, he was um, the one in the control room. And um, I say, I think we rehearsed this one. I'm not quite sure where we, I, I usually remember where we, rehearsal number but mm-hmm. i can't remember where i think it might have been at our manager's place we rehearsed lovers all around uh, i can't remember but anyhow quite liked it and but um when we got in the studio and it came back um i thought yeah this is this is quite nice this is this is quite nice and it was you know it became a sort of a, not not such a bigger hit as you know wild thing but um it got us in the charts again which was and of course it did bigger things later on a string quartet as well on the, on that one. Yeah, well, that's the sort of things that they sort of put on um, later on. All the all, all those bits and pieces. Yeah, well, that was very popular in the United States as as well. Didn't you go to the States in in that period to support the single? No, that no, no, that was um, that was um, uh, a little while after we we went to ah. yeah to the States. But no, the the problem with with, with America was that when we had Wild Thing which went to number one in America. Larry Pace never let us go over there. He wouldn't let us go over there, uh, which was a big mistake, really, because, you know, if you get a number one in America and you go over there, you can clean up, can't you? You know, you you, yeah. you, know, you ask a hell of a lot of money over there, but he, he never... I think it might have been about... Um, might have been a year to 18 months before... Well, when we... We actually, he never ever let us go over there. We, it was only when we broke away from him that we uh, we got somebody to um, arrange a tour over there for us. And um, but by that time, um, people still knew you. But of course, it's sort of a year later or eighteen months later. You know, the, the impact is gone, isn't it? The band played some gigs with the Who, I think even including in Canada, didn't you? And you got to know Keith Moon in particular? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, we, we, we did a, a tour over in America, a few gigs over in America with the Who, and uh, yeah, it was good. And um, yeah, Keith Moon, he was a bit of a character, he was. He, uh, the, the story is that, because um, him and Ronnie were very, very similar in drumming, and their attitude in life, you know, and um, quite um, quite erratic sometimes they are. And Keith Moon, you know, we were playing this gig, and Keith Moon got a little hacksaw, and Ronnie used to have about six drums, sorry, six sticks stuck in his drums because he was a very heavy drummer. And he used to break them quite often, so um, he, he used to have about six drumsticks in his bass drum. When one broke, he'd just whip another one out and start bashing away. Well, Keith Moon... He got hold of Ronnie's drumsticks and he got a little hacksaw and he cut halfway through them all. So if Ronnie picked up another drumstick, he'd hit the drum and it'd break in half. He'd <laughs> see the drumsticks flying all over the place broken. So that, that was a sort of character, you know, but it was good fun it was. It really was a good fun. Mm-hmm. I, I, the story that amuses me more than anything, the Who's road manager, he, um, he wasn't very old, I don't think, but he looked, he looked about 70. He was, he was bent over. He had um, sciatica. He had long hair. He looked like somebody out of the Magic Roundabout. You know, he had this long hair and this hat on. And when the the Who finished their gig, 
course, their amplifiers and speaker, the speakers were all bashed up. The drums were kicked all over the place. It, you know, it looked like a, a battlefield there. And um, I saw him afterwards, you know, he was going around picking up these bits of drums and bits of speakers and bits of guitars. I said, uh, I said, well, I said, you're going to... I said, I suppose you've got to buy new stuff now. He said, no. He said, I've got to repair this lot before the next gig. <laughs> so I thought, we poor. and he was walking about, you know, this sciatica. He was all humped over. I thought, we poor. <laughs> That's one job I wouldn't like. Who's road manager? Close, I wanted to play Hip Hip Array, which is one of the the final singles released in your paid in the band, but it's not a bad time to leave the group in terms of they didn't have sustained chart success after that, but the the way that you left the band seems certainly unfair. Very, very. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, um, it's quite sad, you know, considering what we've been through. All co- we all come from the same town, 
And, uh, you know, we've gone through a hell of a lot together, you know, through really hard times, you know, times when you know, it was hardly any... Reg and Ronnie, they were both on the building site. So mm. uh, if you get a really bad winter, they didn't have any work. They didn't have any money. I remember Ronnie saying um, Sunday lunch, he had porridge once, you know, because they didn't have any money. So, you know, we've gone through an awful lot together, you know, knowing each other's circumstances, knowing their families and their parents as well. So we've gone through all that. So right at the very end, um, it was a big shock when um, I I just got married, actually, and come back off my honeymoon. We did a gig. Uh, I think we went over to Sweden or Norway, somewhere like that. came back and I was at home, just newly married, and they rang up and said, "Uh, Larry wants to see us in London. So I thought, I wonder what's up here. So they picked me up and off we went to London. I said, well, what do you want then? They said, I I don't know, we'll have to wait and see. So when we got up there, we went in Larry's office. There was Larry, a solicitor, and uh, he said, said, "Um, so I got some bad news. He said, "Um, the boys don't want you in the group anymore. I thought, hmm? And, you know, it was, I couldn't believe it. I thought, I said, why? And he said, well, he said, you know, Larry was a big Chelsea football fan. And he said to me, he said, well, he said, he said, like football, Pete. He said, um, you know, when a team's not going very well, you have to make changes. And um, I thought, well, I thought they'd get rid of the manager, not the the players. But, um, and then Reg said, well, he said, um, no, Ronnie said, well, you you like different music to us, Pete. And I thought, well, I've played all what you play. And um, so none of it actually tallied up to me at all. Mm. And I think the, the thing that got me most of all was Reg turned around. He said, he said, if you don't go, Pete, so I'm not going to sing anymore. And I thought, wow, you know, that, that really, that was really a nasty thing to say. You know, after all what we've been through together, I never, ever found out what the real reason was. Mm. I believe we, we were in a lot of, um, I say a lot, we were in financial problems. We had financial problems. You know, we weren't earning anything. And we hadn't paid any tax for four years. And um, oh, and I think there was big panic going on about, you know, well, our, our accountant, he said, well, he said, you know, you should get out of a colossal, you know, tax bills, you know, because our accountants, who was also the record company's accountants, never sent any tax returns in for us. So we never ever paid any tax. So I think there was, a, you know, the money problem was the big, the, were the biggest things there. And the frustration of not having hits. But I, I never know completely, you know, but um, that's how it was. And um, it's just unfortunate after going through that, you know, that's, that's life though, isn't it? That's how it goes. Since then, basically, you've had a, a range of jobs from furniture, restoration, pub management and various other things. And I think um, at the same time, you've dabbled and, and played some, some live shows as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I come out of the group, um, our manager in Andover, because we had two managers in Andover uh, from the 10 feet 5 in the original Trogs, and then we had Larry Page as our manager in London. So we had three managers all together. And one of our managers in Andover, Stan, um, he, he was the one that had a shop fitting business. He said a friend of his has got this antique repair business. Um, he's got trouble with his wife and 
the business is failing. Why don't you buy the business over? He said, at least it'll give you something to um, yeah, occupy your, your time and also maybe earn a bit of money. So I, I bought this small business out and uh, we repaired antique furniture. Well, I think it was, I don't know what year it was, but it was, I think it was the three-day working week, which uh, I don't know if you remember that, when they, the miners were on strike and there was going to be power cuts. And I, I used machinery for my business. And I thought, well, I don't think, I'll, so I sold that business. And uh, the wife and I, we took up pub management. She didn't like it. She didn't like all the smoke and people telling her all these, uh, you know, their hard luck stories. So, we packed that in. I went back to my old trade as an electrician, which was okay. And then one day, uh, one of the lads from the 10 Feet Five, uh, my old band, he said, oh, he said, Pete, so I just bought a set of drums. He said, I thought we'd get back together and just have a little knock around and he'll play some numbers. So I said, yeah, so we, we got our old band back, the old 10 Feet Five, back together again. And um, we used to go around doing gigs. Um, that band gradually packed up and uh, then I formed another band with my son. My son plays guitar, so um, um, I formed another band with him. And uh, yeah, we did a good few gigs um, and quite enjoyed it, really. So um, I, I still went on playing, you know, to a certain degree. And your story is, in, in much more detail, is recounted in Wild Thing or Rocky Road then. So was that quite an interesting experience thinking back to those times and trying to get the the detail of, of what happened with everything yeah it was it took a lot of research because I, I um how i wrote the book was um i used to go out and have drinks with my mates and i used to tell them the jokes the sort of things that i'm telling you and you know sometimes you find they're amusing and they find it amusing as well and they used to say oh pete you could write a book He's, mm. and i thought well you know Perhaps so. Anyhow, uh, I had an email from somebody in America who'd, um, uh, who used to write books for um, pop people, and he said, uh, he said, I'd like to do your autobiography. And uh, I, I don't think he could have done mine, really, because mine... Um, so I read one of the books that he'd um, written for somebody, and um, it, it, it didn't. I didn't know much about the personal life of this pop star, I think it was like Bobby V or somebody like that. Um, I can't remember who it was now. Oh, he recorded Rubber Ball. I forget what his name was. Anyhow, um, oh, what was it? Anyhow, I read this autobiography and there was nothing about this bloke's early life. I didn't know anything about his family, his wife. All he yeah, spoke yeah. about was recording studios and the people that he knew in the pop business. And I found that a little bit boring, actually, uh, even being in the pop business. I want to really know about his family, how he grew up and all that. So when I started to write my book, I made sure that I would bring my whole life into it. You know, when I was born, how I grew up and picked up my first guitar and all that. So I went through the whole palaver right the way until, you know, way after I got married and that. So there was a lot of research that went into it. And... um Unfortunately, the, the, uh, I found a publisher very quickly, and um, they said um, we want this book out by Christmas to get the Christmas 
um, you know, um, buying period. Mm. So um, I had to really rush and get it done. Um, but uh, I did it in the end, but it was a hell of a lot of work. People can um, get more information about you at uh, petestaples.co.uk as well. So you've got a website? That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's one... Um, I've got a big site that somebody runs for me. I've got two sites going, actually. One I look look after myself, and um, yeah. another one, somebody else is the uh, Pete Staples Original Trog 60s. Um, that's on Facebook, so there's, uh, there's quite a bit of information there. Fab. Well, Pete, it's been a pleasure reading your excellent book, Wild Thing, A Rocky Road. It's a pleasure listening to your stories here today and, and and obviously a huge pleasure to listen to the music that you have helped craft with the trogs that was integral to the sound of the 60s that's lovely okay then jason thanks very much indeed bye listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.